HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're kicking off our end-of-year fundraising drive with a special discount offer from our partner, Heritage Foods USA, an online farm-to-table butcher shop specializing in heritage breed antibiotic-free meats. Donate to Heritage Radio Network before Sunday, December 4th at heritageradionetwork.org donate, and we'll send you an exclusive discount code for 10% off all Heritage Foods products. Help ensure another year of great food radio, get 10% off delicious and sustainably produced meat, and support small family farms all in one shot. How's that for a holiday miracle? Head to heritageradionetwork.org donate by Sunday, December 4th to make your contribution. If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, and welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with a Bible of a book, Deep Run Roots by Vivian Howard, with Vivian Howard herself. And, I mean, Deep Run itself is such an amazing titular name of a book, yet alone the Deep Run Roots. And that harkens back to where you actually came from after uh, some time here in New York cooking in illustrious kitchens like WD-50 and John George's Spice Market. But, you know, let's start at those roots themselves and talk about what Deep Run, North Carolina, looks like. Uh, Yeah, I actually live in Deep Run today. And we were, my son, my five-year-old son and I were out eating in Roberta's just a few minutes ago. And this really charming um, guy says in a very thick Korean accent, where do you live? Asked Theo. And he goes, deep run. <laughs> As if everyone on the planet knows. Oh, yeah, yeah, is. yeah. <laughs> but it's like that, that town, that, that mystical town in a movie that, you know, it, it just booms with history and allegory and, and spirit. But y- you grew up with your parents farming tobacco and, and, and hogs. So I, I don't even know what tobacco looks like in the field. Oh, wow. Um, it's about a, a mature plant would be about four to five feet tall, really thick, 
broad, sticky green leaves that are then harvested and dried, and that becomes the you know the the golden. Uh, crumbly mixture that gets stuffed into cigarettes. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> not, not to start off with that as an agricultural <laughs> product, but, um, you know, once we get into the book, we'll talk more about uh, specific recipes. But there was this one that just had me, and it, it, was, a, it was a float. It was a Pepsi and, and peanut float, um, which in and of itself sounds delicious, but the fact that it was a snack for those tobacco farmers that they, they had in the field... Um, how did they construct that? That was in the bottle? Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, Deep Run was very much an agricultural community based around tobacco uh, historically. And um, people would get up really early in the morning in midsummer, you know, 4 a.m. to be out there by sunrise. And the worst job of all in um, in tobacco production is something called topping and suckering. And that's where you cut the tops and the flowers off of the tobacco plant so that they will produce bigger, broader leaves. It's like pruning back for wine, yeah. Exactly. Um, and so because the tobacco plant's so sticky, people's hands would be covered in gum. And around 10 a.m., the, the, the farm manager or the shift manager would uh, ride in in a pickup truck, and in that pickup truck he'd have uh, Pepsi's in the bottle because Pepsi was born in eastern North Carolina and uh, peanuts, salted peanuts and sleeves. And so that the uh, farm workers didn't have to, to eat peanuts with sticky, gummy hands. They would just open the peanuts and dump them into the Pepsi bottle and, and consume it that way. And what ended up happening is we created this salty and sweet and very uh, very energy-giving snack. Yeah, you know, it, it could have gone either way. I feel like having that kind of visual, you could have had the allure of going into some kind of, you know, uh, agricultural thing, whether being a grower or being, you know, a producer or, or a chef like you are, or what you actually did and went into advertising. Because that, that in and of itself seems like a big tobacco or Pepsi ad. Yeah, well, I mean, what I actually wanted to do and why I moved here was I, I wanted to be a journalist. Um, and advertising was as close as I could get. Uh, and so I, I did that uh, for a while. I never, ever wanted to be in agriculture. I always said and heard my mom say, never marry a farmer. Never marry a farmer. It's the hardest work. And I think what ended up happening was I got into the next hardest work. Um, and by hard, I mean that you work um, when other people are playing. With, and farmers do that and cooks do that. Yeah, but I mean, there's a wonderful world of counterculture, and we, we both seemingly enjoy that. And We you know, find <laughs> ways to play. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You, you play with your own in, yes. in, that, in that fashion. But, you know, never marry a farmer, and you, but you did the next best thing, which was cooking. And it, it was the allure of New York's restaurant scene, that kind of sucked you in what, what were the first ones that you kind of entered the doors through um well actually the first time i lived here i was um an intern at cbs sunday morning and uh it was a great experience but what what really captivated me were all um i had my first zagat guide and i went through and marked all the like 15 and under uh dollar spots that i could afford and made it my mission to eat at all of those that summer. And I would write my own little reviews. I even wrote Zagat saying I wanted to be a, a, a reviewer for them, which I didn't, I didn't understand that that was not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, for me, 
that that summer I I had my first, you know, slices of pizza. That's not something we had in the South. And my first sushi um, and my first, you know, street meat, um, things that uh, are, are s- such a core part of New York, or at least the way New York, um, I see New York, and I was just blown away by it. Voyage in Greenwich Village. Mm-hmm. What did you do? Did you just walk in there and said, I want to be a server here. I want to be as close to the food as possible. Um, no, no. I was actually kind of down and out on my luck, I guess. And I was looking for a job. And I, I went to Hogs and Heifers uh, <laughs> in the meatpacking district. I'll just let people look that up online. Yeah, please. Um, and I walked in the door. And this is the middle of the afternoon. And the, the women, they were, they were hiring so the women behind the bar said, if you want to work here, you got to get on the bar and dance. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I don't know what to do. And I grew up clogging professionally or um, competitively. And so I got on the bar <laughs> and started clogging to uh, the devil went home to Georgia. And these women, uh, very seasoned bartenders in New York, they th- their mouths dropped open and they were they said, you are hired. Come back at five. And so I left there um, kind of excited, but also a little afraid. I knew that if I, if I took that job, it would be, you know, a, I would be taking a different turn in my life. Um, so I was walking home, and I passed this another now hiring sign, and it, it was for this restaurant, Voyage, in the West Village. And I walked in, and the, the owner, they were getting ready to open. The owner looked me in the eye, asked me a few questions, didn't ask if I had a New York experience, none of that, and said, okay, you're hired. And I, I should have gone, like, you know, to Danielle after that because I was really, you know. Yeah, on hot streak. Uh, yeah. But, uh, please tell me that at your restaurant now back in North Carolina, you reprise that scene, that you, you clog on your own bar at least maybe once a year. I do not. I do not. But I have, I've, I've clogged for some people just for entertainment, and it's ended up on television. So I try to keep it to myself now. Yeah. So what was it about New York that maybe you said, I've had enough, or that you did have enough and you could take that and transport it back to North Carolina and start the life that you live now? Um, well, you know, I had lived here for a little over five years and moved like seven times. And we kept moving to, you know, more worse and worse neighborhoods and, and not really bigger apartments. And um, we, I, I was, we were fatigued by it, I guess. Um, and so we decided that we would try something somewhere else. We didn't think it would be permanent. You know, I kind of always saw myself coming back. I still have a 718 phone number, <laughs> uh, like 13 years later. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I, I'm not sure that And when we moved, when we went to North Carolina, I felt a degree of failure, um, which I think became a, an inspiring uh, force. You know. I, I feel you in that that aspect because I see a lot of people moving out of the city now because of cost, because of other reasons, but they're finding successes, uh, whether they move home or in other parts of the country, because those parts of the country have a lot to give. Mm-hmm. And it, it's always been thought, you know, you go to the big city to, to make your big plans uh, or put those things in action. But what, what what's doing in the back of your head? I know going back to North Carolina may have seemed a little defeated, but something must have been bubbling. 
Yeah, well, I thought that we could use our experience in eastern North Carolina um, kind of as a springboard to do something in a larger city, not necessarily um, Manhattan, or, um, but, but somewhere like Raleigh or um, Philadelphia or Chicago. My husband's from Chicago, and that's where I really thought that we might, we might go because it had already started to become clear to me that, um, that I didn't want to live in New York forever, no matter how successful I was. Um, it's, it's great, but it's, it's challenging. This 100-year-old mule stable. Yes. Was it something that you knew as a child? Was it a location that you passed while going to school? What was it about that spot that made you say, this is going to be our restaurant? Well, um, to be fair, our restaurant is in a little town called Kenston, which is about a 20-minute drive, 25-minute drive from Deep Run, where we live. And growing up, when we would go to Kenston, we would get dressed up. And, and we, we were going to town, and we'd do it, like, once a week, and it was a big deal. And the, the building that the restaurant is in um, was at one time a, a mule stable, and then it became something else. And then when I was a child, it was a very high-end um, gift store. Like, my mom would go there to buy wedding gifts for people. And I just remember being in there as a kid and her saying, don't touch anything, don't touch anything. And um, the irony is that I've touched everything. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, chef and the farmer, again, uh, you couldn't just be a chef. And now now you would associate the people that your mother told you never to marry. Right. Um, Who were the first farmers that you, you know, contacted? And were they people that you knew before? Or were you just kind of relearning your surroundings for the first time? Right. Well, we um, when we moved back, we put out feelers saying, you know, we're going to open this restaurant here and we're going to the idea is to use ex-tobacco farmers and try to make them food farmers. And that that idea was really met with a little bit of disdain um, and just eye rolling. Um, But there were a few people who came out of the woodworks. One of them is this gentleman, Warren Brothers, who I work with to this day. He was a tobacco farmer turned medicinal herb farmer. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And he uh, he said, I'll be happy to grow some vegetables for you. And so um, we set about uh, planting all kinds of things. And and, and he's been our primary source for vegetables uh, for the whole ten and a half years we've been open. I mean, there's sweet potatoes, blueberries, pork, shrimp, beans, okra, summer corn. I mean, there is a list, and there's also, um, you know, there's also a table of contents in the book which lays it all out like that. But, you know, what were some of these foods or some of these ingredients? um, How did they resonate with you differently than you had seen them here in, in New York City? Right. Well, when we moved back, I was just dead set on not cooking the food of eastern North Carolina. I didn't. Uh, I didn't believe it had value. I felt like it was um, not sophisticated. It was poor people food. Um, I was still very much embarrassed by it. And I remember I I was so adamant about this, about Warren growing uh, Jerusalem artichokes, an ingredient I had worked with here. Um, And he's like, Vivian, we we used to grow artichokes all the time here, but people got tired of them because they take over your garden. And I and it just it it was one of those first light bulb moments that made me think, okay, um, maybe maybe there's more going on here than I thought. 
Um, and so as, as hard as I pushed for, the, for people to produce stuff like lemongrass and purple potatoes, what kept showing up were, you know, squash and collards and turnips and sweet potatoes. And so um, I had to learn to, to work with those things in a way that was fulfilling to me as a cook. But you also had to learn what people wanted. You know, you, you can come from the big city and, and put this spectacular dish together, but no one's going to eat it unless there's something, there's a hook Right. You know, and, and what was that hook? Was it taking the flavors that you would learn or was it taking the technique? Um, so in, in the beginning, I was making ridiculous stuff like goat cheese ravioli with tomato petals. <laughs> and it was fine, but people were not super excited about it. And I hit on something when I tried to make um, a barbecue chicken dish that was based on the tradition of vinegar-based barbecue. And so I made a blueberry vinegar uh, because blueberries are incredibly plentiful where we live. They love sandy soil just like tobacco does. Um, and so I made this blueberry vinegar, and then I made barbecue chicken with it, which is really what people in my part of the country eat a lot of. We're People think we eat whole hog barbecue every day, but we, <laughs> we do that for weddings and anniversaries, and we eat barbecue chicken regularly. Um, and so I hit on something when I made that because it was both uh, familiar but different enough that nobody was comparing it to their barbecue chicken. And so I, I was like, oh, okay, um, what if I kind of translate the, the very specific foods of my region through a lens of new technique and balance and add texture? Um, because that's one of the things that we're known for uh, down there is not having a whole lot of texture in our food. <laughs> well, well, what are the what are the descriptors? Is mush a bad thing? Like- I mean, mush. I mean, I, I love me some mush. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but um, I like mush punctuated by something crispy. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm going to jump right into the book right here because one of my favorite parts is actually the pimp my grits. Yeah. Um, and and first, let's explain a little bit what grits is. I, I know I wouldn't do it justice, so I'm going to. Well, grits um, is grits are a savory porridge made from ground dried corn, and um, if you if you dry if you ground the corn incredibly fine, you have corn meal. If you ground the corn to a slightly larger consistency, you have grits, and it takes time for those grits to absorb whatever liquid you're cooking them in. Um, and so you can do it with water, you can do it with milk, you can do it with stock. Um, and so at, I guess at its core, grits are a savory porridge that is very much a staple on our tables. But then when you say grits versus risotto, and it's a very similar technique, you know, people think of grits one way and risotto the next. But what Pimp My Grits does is, is kind of dresses them up. Right. shows that they can be such a wonderful vehicle for so many things. Right. We used to have an entire uh, section of our menu dedicated to Pimp My Grits. And basically the premise was we would use grits, this very um, basic porridge, as a canvas to kind of express all the elements of taste. So we would have some umami, some acid, some bitterness. Uh, we would apply texture and it was it was really an exciting thing to to do on a menu until someone told me I probably shouldn't have the word pimp <laughs> on my menu. So we changed it. Now that that's a city thing. <laughs> but you know, I'm gonna say it one more time. Pimp my grits. Greens with hot sauce and pork rinds might have changed my life. I eat all those things separately, but as as one 
total wholly encompassing dish. And you can use the, yeah, so basically the idea is to have grits and greens cooked together, which is a traditional preparation. It would traditionally be with collards. I choose turnips because I'm a turnip girl. Um, And then I do, uh, they get baked in the oven, and we do a hot sauce, brown butter, vinaigrette on top. That applies the acidity and the heat uh, that we need. And then for texture, we use pork cracklins or pork rinds, and you can crumble them up and eat them with the spoon. Or I like to treat it like a chip and, and go down with the whole pork rind into the grits and eat it that way. I thought I was just a messy eater, but I, I may have done the latter. <laughs> so we're, we're going to take a quick break and come back and hear more of the stories of Deep Run Roots by Vivian Howard. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified seal tells them their food is grown right, right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do, but the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov. And welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here again with Vivian Howard. Uh, you may know her also by A Chef's Life on PBS, and I, I kind of want to jump into that because, I mean, all the stories here in the book are, are things that you have explored through that wonderful documentary. Um, and there must have been a point where just cooking and putting out menus and talking to people that come in your restaurant wasn't enough. Like, why did you want to start this larger multimedia exploration into North Carolina? Uh, Well, as I said uh, before, I I moved to New York because I wanted to be a journalist. I always wanted to be a storyteller. I, um, and so for a while I thought I was content with just cooking, but I, I still had this kind of burning desire hidden inside of me to, to, to try and still be a journalist of some sort. So when I started looking really deep into my community and, and learning about the food ways of Eastern North Carolina, I realized there were a lot of stories to tell there. And I set out to make a documentary about those things. And I wanted to, you know, tell the story of collard kraut and hog killings and putting up corn. And um, I have a friend, uh, Cynthia Hill. She's a documentary filmmaker. She grew up about a mile from me. And I called her to see if she would help me do it. And that's really the beginning of how this all happened. And before, so then I end up like, it's not really just about those traditions. It's also about me and my family and our culture and, um, and I'm sure that it's better for it. Yeah. Not, it, it is definitely more painful as well. Yeah. But I mean, these roots that you talk about, uh, where does the story start? Does it start with you? 
Or does it start with an ingredient, a dish? Like, where does that idea of each episode begin? Uh, every episode starts with an ingredient. And that's really been the way that we've been able to organize the whole series and, and also made it feel like it's not a reality series about my life. It's really a reality series about an ingredient. Um, because we tell the story of that ingredient through the farmer who grows it, the older person who cooks it in their home, um, the way my family experiences it in you know modern day, and, and the way then I translate it uh, in our restaurant kitchen. And I think it's that structure and the organization around the ingredient that makes it really work. But I mean, let's start with pecan. We, I mean, we just had or pecan. Uh, pe- pecan. <laughs> we, we, we just had uh, uh, Thanksgiving. Um, and I think people take that ingredient for granted then and throughout the rest of the year, it's, it's not necessarily folded in, you know, to our, you know, daily eating life. Right. Um, but what is it, what does it mean to, you know, Eastern North Carolina? How does it grow? Who are the people that you know, and, and, and what do you do to not only keep it traditional, but also change it a little bit? Well, you know, pecans are, uh, native to our country and growing up they were like I think in the book I describe them as like the truffles of of our kitchen because they were these very um, valuable things that literally fell from the sky and when I was a kid my mom her parents would make her wake up before dawn and go out in the road and pick up any pecans that had fallen in the road Um, before trucks or school buses had the opportunity to come and crush them, then she would sell them at the market, and that would be their Christmas money. I mean, so pecans were literally, uh, you know, a a valuable source of trade. And they're the type of thing that I would get for Christmas. It really pissed me off, but (laughs) I I got bags of pecans for Christmas. It's better than pennies during Halloween. (laughs) I guess so. I guess so. But, um, you know, they're... there, we use them a lot around Thanksgiving and Christmas, but in, in our culture, we freeze them and bring them out all year long. And we still see them as really valuable. I, now I give them as gifts. I can't believe that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, as, as you know, with any fresh uh, nut, it's really different than the nuts that you would buy in the grocery store. I mean, if you go to your market in, in Brooklyn here tomorrow and buy a bag of pecans, they're going to be tr- dramatically different than the pecans that I have in North Carolina. I, I, I know you have uh, pecan chewy pie in there, but where else does it play a role in, in your food, in your cuisine? One, one of my favorite dishes actually in the whole book is the breakfast in the car. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I believe that breakfast, I, I'm, I'm against eating in the car um, because I think we should we should pay attention to what we're eating and it should be a, a moment of breaking bread and looking at people. But sometimes when you have children and you got to get to school, you have to savor food in the car or, and, and roll up that bread, and roll it up. <laughs> yeah. So I make this pecan butter, um, in the spirit of, uh, peanut butter and, uh, roll out a slice of bread with a rolling pin, really, really thin and spread the pecan butter on there. I put a little bit of vanilla bean in it and then shingle, bananas and roll it up and and my children eat it like a cigar and it's a brilliant um uh one hand food that you know either in the car or at the beach you could do any kind of sandwich really that way too so i mean this book in it in its greater scope isn't 
just about food. It's about you in the same way that you know a chef's life is imbued with your life. It's it's not a restaurant book. It's not even uh, a book about a specific type of native cuisine. It's how you fit into the world there and how food influences you and feeds your family. Yeah, it's a really personal book, and um, it's really organized around stories as much as it is ingredients. But I think the stories are very um, not only personal but universal in that I tell a lot of stories about my mom. I tell a lot of stories about their background. I talk about my children. But I, there's at the core of all those stories is something that I think we, we all can relate to. I mean, talk to me about pork shoulder steaks in red curry braised watermelon. Watermelon being the ingredient in, in that chapter. But, you know, it, it, it seems so outside, you know, the influence of, of that region of cuisine. Yeah, well, you know, what I was trying to do is, you know, if you're going to have a watermelon chapter in a book with, that has more than two recipes in it, you got to try and cook that watermelon. And that's not something we do a lot of. And so I was just kind of fooling around. And I love, I love watermelon with lime juice. And I love watermelon with spice. And so... Uh, red curry and lime juice and fish sauce became my um, my vehicle for for trying to cook watermelon and I it was actually I, I did not think it was going to work and it ended up being probably my favorite recipe in the book and really the most surprising of all of them and I've served it many many times and people um, look at it and they swear that the cubes the red cubes that hold texture after it's been in the oven for two hours are tomato. And I have to fight with them to let them know <laughs> that it's actually watermelon. Well, it's a beautifully stunning image in the book. And just looking at that first, I was like, wait a sec, you cooked watermelon. But again, you know, having that foundation and technique and thinking outside of the box, you get to do things like butter bean hummus. So how many, how, how do you introduce these ethnic foods that may seem foreign, you know, to deep run to, to, a community that might not be as explorative as, as you know, New York City. Well, let's be clear. Hummus is uh, my my children are far far more likely to eat hummus than they are uh, stewed collard greens at this point. You know, hummus is ubiquitous in our society, um, and I, I I love Southern food, but it can become uh, tiresome to just cook one one flavor profile over and over and over again. So the, the premise for our restaurant and the premise for the book has always been more ingredients. Like this is a set of ingredients that people grow here, and this is what I can do with them. Um, so we've always had influences from other cultures on the menu, um, but always worked with our set of ingredients. But you can't change warm banana pudding that much. No, <laughs> no, but I do, um, you know, I love the, the flavor of banana and sesame. And so that is something that I incorporate into my warm banana pudding is I make a, a, a sesame uh, cookie instead of a vanilla wafer. And I think it works wonderfully. And if people have never had their banana pudding warm, then they're really missing something. Yeah, I thought that was a given. I mean, I've I've had cold, but one, it's like one of those things. Once you go warm, you don't go back. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, also flipping through this book, uh, there there are things that I've never heard of before, but then are familiar, like Frogmore Steam. I've I've been to many uh, seafood boils, but what makes the Frogmore Steam different and distinct? 
Well, you know, whenever you go to these seafood boils, it's like you put everything in the pot and it just boils and boils and boils. And it's it's in a, a broth that's not uh, distinctive and there's too much of it. And some things come out cooked perfectly and some things are overcooked. And I really wanted, I always feel like it could be so much better. And so this technique that I introduce in the book of doing this in the oven with very little broth, um, enough broth that what ends up happening is that you can toss the whole dish in the really flavorful broth in the end, I think makes the makes it far more tasty. You yeah. don't do it outside, so it takes that element away. But um, depending on how you look at it, uh, it's it's thumbs up. I mean, there there are two distinct lives here, though. There There is the indoor, you know, being with family and trying to cook efficiently and deliciously. And then there is the outside where, where you've explored with a chef's life. Um, I mean, it must be hard sometimes to see situations like a seafood boil or, you know, a whole hog roast and figure out how to interpret that whole experience in, in, in a singular dish. Right. And, and, have, and, and have it be accessible for people. Um, you know, I, I think cooking a whole hog is, is a, a great thing, but I've, I've only done it twice in my life, and we geared up for it for days and then cleaned up for more days. So it's not it's, – I, I wanted the book and the recipes in it to be accessible. And if they're not, um, it's something that you'll make today and you can enjoy for a year, like putting up corn or some of the relishes in the book that are – or canning tomatoes, which is what I want. You know, if you can anything, if you put anything up for the rest of your life, you should can tomatoes in the summer because the end product is leagues and leagues and leagues above anything you can buy in the grocery store. You know, there are those cyclical things, obviously, canning during the summer, but uh, one that I was most fascinated about is is that you did, you know, introduce this tradition, the personal one, of the air-dried sausage biscuits. I mean, it's an expectation in your family on Christmas morning. Oh, yeah. It's our only long-standing family tradition and the meal that we look forward to the most all year long. Christmas morning, my dad wakes up before dawn um, and grills sausage. Now my husband helps him because my dad, he he's, wakes up hungry and he lights the fire way too high. And there's like flames shooting up and, and lighter fluid. And uh, so now my husband helps. Um, but we would, then we eat sausage biscuits after sausage biscuits. And our, our sausage is hung to dry for a week or two um, so that the... It, the flavors intensify. It takes on a little bit of a funk, but it's not like a salami. You still have to cook it, um, and that's the type of. I always say in Eastern North Carolina, our air dried sausage is is stands in for country ham. It's the way that we season most of our greens. We'll slide it into a biscuit. Um, many times growing up, it was the meat on our plate. Yeah, but I mean, you even have to plan a week out for that. But you're hoping that people incorporate these traditions into their own lives, too. I mean, what, what are some of the other things that you do throughout the year and you only do at that time of year that you hope someone kind of incorporates into their own personal calendar? Well, the sausage is a big one because um, the reason that's mentioned and actually explored deeply in the book is because I feel like that tradition is going away because it's really uh, we're the only people who do it in 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 eastern North Carolina is the culture that it comes from. Um, also, putting up corn, you know, sweet corn is uh, something that I think most Southerners love. And 
Um, it's certainly, I think, every kid's favorite vegetable if they've if they've ever had it. Um, and if you if you blanch it, cut it off the cob, put it in freezer bags, and freeze uh, freezer bags, and bring it out during holidays. That's something that um, I think is a great tradition to have. Uh, canning tomatoes, absolutely. Drying apples, you know, dried apples are um, that you do yourself are way better than the dried apples that you buy in the grocery store. Um, and these are things that, you know, I don't expect every every household to tuck under the belt and do, but um, there are parts of my life that, that, that I hope my children take with them. And I hope that many people other than just your children take them to uh, heart as well. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if you haven't seen Deep run roots by vivian howard or, or checked out a chef's life on pbs please do because uh these recipes are, are soulful and have so much story and um they support so many people too i, I really want to hammer that home because you care so much about these farmers you care so much about that land that you know yes it's agriculture but there's a big a big chain of people that you know you're living with when you eat one of these recipes, when you serve one of these recipes. Yeah, and one of the things that we really tried to do from the beginning with the show and then in a um, larger context with the book is to lift up these like traditional foodways in eastern North Carolina and give pride. Uh, by lifting them up, hopefully give pride to the people who um, prepare them and consume them because where we live, it's like one of these places in our country that people apologize for continuing to live. You know, whenever I moved home to Eastern North Carolina, everybody said, oh, as soon as my mama dies, I'm leaving. Or I had to move home to take care of this house and, and I'm leaving. And, and um, by shining a light on the food that they cook and that um, is really a part of themselves, I think we give them pride in themselves. And um, people with pride are productive people. And I think it puts the term putting up in a whole different light. Absolutely. It means that you're going to stay there for another season. You're yes. going to stay there for another year. You're going to stay there for another generation. But well, you're not going to pack up all those jars of tomatoes and move to Brooklyn. No, heck no. <laughs> <laughs> Don't have the room here. But hopefully we can come visit you in, in your great expanse of uh, eastern North Carolina. Go say hi to Vivian if you stop in at the Chef and Farmer. You've been listening to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Big thank you to New York State, grown and certified, music by Cookies, and David as our engineer. One other quick thing. The Food Scene is brought to you by Heritage Radio, a member-supported nonprofit radio station devoted to all things food. But, you know, HRN needs your support during the big end-of-year fundraiser. Contribution in any amount not only supports HRN's 35-plus weekly programs, but also comes with exclusive member benefits like monthly best-of playlists, so-so fashionable swag, discounted event tickets, members-only parties, and more. So if you like good food and you love good food radio, throw a little dough our way. You can donate to HRN by going to heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate and click on that little heart in the top right corner. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you.
For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.